0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Tom Tones, Assistant Professor of Political Theory and European Politics at Leiden University's Institute of Political Science. For a change, although I expect this to be the first of many, I am talking to an author not about a book, but about a new and topical paper they've written. Today, it is The Need for an EU Expulsion Mechanism, Democratic Backsliding and the Failure of Article 7, published in January by Springer in the Res Publica Journal. Dr. Tern's paper is especially relevant following Viktor Orban's re-election to a fourth consecutive term as Hungary's Prime Minister, and doing this with an increased popular mandate, together with the arrival in Parliament of a new, to, of a new party to his illiberal and eurosceptical right. While the EU and its member states rally to their core values in support of Ukrainian democracy and the country's European vocation, Orban used his campaign to resist sanctions against Russia, block weapons transit, paint the opposition as EU-loving warmongers, and himself as the last bulwark against globalists and what he calls Western gender insanity. Ukraine has forced the EU to pick a side, to go beyond three decades of mere words about democracy and the rule of law. So after, after Ukraine, how should the EU deal with the development of autocracies within its borders? Tom Towns has a radical answer. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, could we begin by you outlining the broad argument in your paper and why you decided to write it at the end of last year?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the broad argument of the paper is that, unlike maybe supposed, the sovereignty, if you will, over membership of the European Union does not only lie with the EU member states individually. So that that's what I would call the standard view. The standard view is that only a member state can decide to leave the European Union via Article 50 in accordance with its own constitutional requirements. Mm. And while there's obviously strong political and normative reasons to want to protect member states' membership, right, so to underline this kind of sovereign view. What started to trouble me as I experienced and worked on democratic backsliding in Europe over the last 10 years or so is the niggling concern with the possibility that an EU member state might become what I call frankly autocratic. Mm. So if if an EU member state was to go in the direction of say Belarus, in terms of its constitutional arrangements and politics, or even we can imagine um, things could degenerate even further than that. The idea that the other EU member states could do nothing to disassociate themselves from that member state was something that I found very problematic. So I started to think of ways in which EU member states may dissociate from a frankly autocratic state. And the idea here is not to recommend that this course of action should be taken uh, right now with respect to, say, Hungary, but rather to emphasize that this is a, a legal and possible course of action that would also normatively be um, desirable, or at least would be amongst the options that ought to be taken to... Um, to cut off an autocratic member state from European integration um, in the future. One of the motivations is political. It's the idea that what I've called the standard view that EU member states are fully sovereign over their own membership, and in no way could um, be expelled from the European Union, that that actually empowers autocrats Uh, in the European Union so if you have a population that is largely majority or even a strong majority is in favor of membership of the EU but they're also supporting um, political leaders that are backsliding on EU fundamental values then you're really by by emphasizing this possibility of disassociation you're really pushing a choice onto that population right do you yeah. want to continue with this um, this sort of development given that the costs may eventually be membership of the EU the the mechanism that I describe in the paper is one that I've explored a little bit with a with a colleague of mine a lawyer Marianne chamon a lawyer in Maastricht the idea is that collectively pro pro-european sorry, pro-democratic member states could collectively invoke Article 50. And then in the procedure whereby they withdraw from the EU, if enough member states are doing this simultaneously, they could use their qualified majority in the Council to negotiate very favourable terms whereby, for example, the resources of the current EU are transferred to a new supranational institution. They could then adopt the acquis communautaire. They could adopt... The case law, the jurisprudence of the ECJ. And then the idea is that they could go on largely as before but without an autocratic member state or member states. So the, yeah. the article that I wrote has this has this legal component, but mainly it's an exercise of normative political theory, whereby I ask I, I, I argue that there's a strong normative case for including for recognising the need to expel autocratic member states were that situation to arise?
1: Okay, well, we'll, we'll come back to to the argument um, after, after this sort of big, broader question, which is, it, it may come as a surprise to to some listeners that the EU has values and norms that it, that it isn't just an economic and trading arrangement what, what is the history of the EU as a values organization and and how did we end up with article seven
2: so uh, to, a, to, a, to a certain extent you're asking the wrong person i'm I'm not, I'm not a historian and others have written much more much more eloquently on on the development of article seven and and its prehistory an article that i particularly appreciate was written by a a Polish jurist Siderski he has a, a great piece on on the kind of history backdrop of article 7 which I learned a lot from mm.
1: if you if I should add I, I, I shall link to that uh, to both articles uh, in the in the post attached to this podcast so sorry continue
2: <laughs> yeah so, so if you will the the EU in my optic was also always um, a value and norm based association the the initial Ambition of European integration was always normative, but the vehicle of integration was initially strongly economic. So, if you if you look, and, and I've learned a lot recently from reading um, from reading a book on this by Peter Varovchek, initial political actors that um, that are founding. European, the, the institutions that lead up to the European Union, right, to so the, the European coal and steel community and so on, the, the objectives are really quite clearly um, normative objectives, right? Peace in Europe, cooperation between great powers, um, the, you know, increasing, t- the, the taming, if you will, of, of German military ambition and so forth, w- while recognizing that that needs to take place in a context of of mutual growth and cooperation. These are very very clearly normative goals. Then in the history of the kind of EU as as a values-based organization that increasingly uses its values, you can see that um, the use of value conditionality in the EU is something that really develops alongside conditionality in development politics. So you see um, in response to... I mean? initially, that development assistance and development politics is increasingly shaped in terms of um, conditionality, initially negative conditionality, so it, in context of gross human rights violations and so forth. Um, um, where was I? So in, in terms of um, the EU as a values organisation, so you see this starting to be copied over from development politics. It, gets, uh, very, it becomes very important in the context of the Copenhagen criteria. So especially later a session, a session of, of Central and Eastern European member states, it becomes increasingly important um, that these states show that they are making progress on uh, values-related kind of governance. Um, so democracy, rule of law, human rights, the protection of minorities, and so forth. And then that becomes crystallized in, in the European Union, in, in the Treaty of the European Union, under Article 2, Centrally, Article 2, which lists the fundamental values of the EU, including democracy, equality, the rule of law, and so forth. And also, uh, Article 10, in the context of democratic backsliding, is really important, which kind of just declares that the European Union is an association uh, which is founded on representative democracy. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of, I, I suppose, the legal aspect and even the political aspect in terms of conditionality it's something which slowly comes in over time and mirrors what I would, what I would recognize as, as a kind of normative origin, uh, which, which really predates back to the beginning of of this European integration project.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the theoretical tools you use uh, in the paper is this concept of militant democracy, um, which uh, I mean, there's quite a rich literature on this now, and we've we discussed it a couple of times on this podcast before, but c- could you take us through that and, and how it's informed your argument?
2: Yes, great. So to get a little bit more into the detail of the argument, what I... What I so the, the, the central mechanism for dealing with um, democratic backsliding, but in general, the violation of fundamental values is, as you, mm-hmm. as you mentioned in your, in your previous question, is Article 7. Article 7... Um, has a procedure, outlines a procedure whereby a member state can be sanctioned by losing its vote in the council, which is one of the main legislative bodies of of the EU. Mm. The article is stated in quite a general fashion. So it says that uh, a member state could lose rights and privileges including their vote in the council. Um, But most literature is focused on, on this loss of a council vote. And basically, What my article does is initially I provide a critique of that sanction. So I say the Article 7 sanction is problematic because if you were to strip a member state of their right to vote in the council but continue to hold that state subject to EU law and policy, you're in a situation where you're undermining some quite fundamental democratic principles. And because the purpose of Article 7 is to affirm and to police, if you will, these fundamental values of Article 2, including democracy, you start to see something of a normative incoherence Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because the sanction itself undermines the value that the article purports to defend. That's, let's say, the first argumentative step. So the first argumentative step is to say that the sanction in Article 7 is problematic from the perspective of democratic legitimacy. And i argue okay would it be problematic i I ask would it be problematic for a an autocratic member state to retain their right to vote and participate in european institutions and european legislation and i argue that that is also deeply problematic right if an autocratic state retains their right to participate in eu legislation and eu policy making what that means is that all european union citizens and all other member states are agreeing are going along with being bound to law and policy which is co-decided by an autocrat who does not enjoy democratic legitimacy so here we see a kind of a paradox right stripping the, the member state of the right to vote is normatively deeply problematic it's incoherent with democratic legitimacy and on the other hand doing nothing is also deeply problematic And it's at this point where I draw militant democracy. So I say, look, militant democratic theory is designed to deal with exactly these sorts of paradoxes. Right. Militant democratic theory asks, when is it acceptable normatively to use sanctions that are themselves anti-democratic to the defense of democracy, in the defense of democracy?
1: Mm.
2: And... I study militant democratic theory, and, and my answer is that the most robust defences of militant democratic theory, I base myself here mainly on, on three authors on Lauenstein, to so the original militant democratic theorist, and, and in contemporary theory, uh, more on Alexander Kirchner, my colleague in, in Leider, Bastian Reibkamer. I so, say, look, these, these moderate accounts of militant democratic theory, they agree that there are certain conditions that should should limit militant democratic action, right? So it's, it's not okay for democracies to act anti-democratically whenever they feel threatened. There needs to be, you know, a real threat. The threat needs to be an existential threat to the democratic nature of the, of the polity. And the anti-democratic action needs to be itself um, necessary to contain that threat. So I, I explore these different conditions. And then I see if they apply in the EU context. And there the argument is that because there's always this possibility of disassociating from an autocratic state, it's never permissible for the EU to act Mm anti-democratically. The idea is that disassociation from an autocratic member state would not be anti-democratic. So there always exists this possibility for non-anti-democratic responses which would contain the threat of um, anti-democratic forces within the european union the threat to the democratic character of the eu because that's a possibility anti-democratic possibility uh, policy options right so militant options are no longer legitimate on these kind of Mm -hmm. classic lines of militant democratic theory so that's that's the the detail of the argument regarding militant democracy
1: do do you think, I mean, what, what struck me reading that was in in practical terms, uh, you know, there have been plenty of studies of this now, very few decisions taken in the Council of Ministers are taken by vote. Um, most things are, 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 you know, are left to consensus. Does that make any of this less of a punishment, do you think? Or, or, or does your principle still stand? Mm,
2: so do, I think the principle still stands because it's, It's a principle, principle, right? (laughs) The fact, the fact that um, EU member states agree to act consensually when consensus is not legally mandated—it's a political choice, Mm -hmm. and it's a choice that's perfectly within the bounds and the scope of their authority. The fact is, they have this choice because there is a procedure that details what's minimally required for a vote to be successful and in in either in either case i suppose um the question is not so much for me as a democratic theorist what the resulting legislation would be substantively right so if there's a Mm -hmm. if there's a huge difference in the types of law and policy that would be made with the inclusion or the exclusion of this this frankly autocratic state but it's it's a deeper, it's a more philosophical principle. It's the idea that agreeing to be co-governed by an autocrat means trading mm-hmm. in some of one's civil freedoms and liberties.
1: Yeah, and actually, um, you have this uh, very interesting section where you compare, where well, you talk about the purposes of penal sanctions and make make the comparison there, and you, know, you look at what principles there most apply in this case, and... What jumped out to me were the inoculative and dissuasive uh, elements rather than punitive, for the for the very reason I was just describing there, because as I understand it, if if this nuclear option happened that you discuss at the end of the paper where everyone else leaves, uh, deploys Article 15, they leave the EU, and they just left, let's say, Hungary, for the sake of argument, inside the hungarians would still be members of the single market still members of the european economic area which given everything that orban and his people say it sounds like kind of that's what they want so they'd end up pretty much with what they wanted but it would be the rest of the eu that would be protected from having the autocrat in their midst do you think is is that a fair argument do you think
2: sure i mean it's it's look the the idea The idea is that dissociation from an EU member state who becomes, frankly, autocratic would indeed inoculate the European Mm. Union from this autocratic influence in its lawmaking and policymaking, right? The extent to which it's um, desirable from that point to continue economic integration with this, frankly, autocratic state in, in this hy- hypothetical, a future, frankly autocratic Hungarian state, um, is of course kind of an open question. And, and it, we, we move into a different, also a different realm of normative thinking from, from the realm of supranational integration, where I think because we're trading some of, because member states are trading some of their sovereignty with other member states, it becomes incredibly important what sort of constitutional character. These other member states have, to because because it has a has a knock on effect directly to how we can think of ourselves as as political citizens as free as free citizens, and it moves mm-hmm. into a realm of um, well, to what extent do we think it's desirable to have very strong economic links with a frankly autocratic state? Right, it moves into the realm, if you will, of of free trade agreements, of foreign policy, and, and in that context. Um, the European Union has been quite proactive in using kind of normative conditionality criteria to try to to try to push for change to try to uh, get some governance reforms sometimes, uh, as I've argued in the past uh, in a manner that's that's um, also problematic normatively mm. speaking, but we're in a different kind of a kind of context there. Um, yeah I also think it doesn't really make sense in international relations, because now then we would be talking about really um, external relations, to think about punitive sanctions, right? Uh, because we, we leave, the analogy becomes even more stretched once we're in properly international relations. Within the European Union, we have shared institutions, we have uh, a shared framework whereby this analogy to the penal uh, context, even though there is no kind of penal coercive um, institutional architecture in the European Union, it, it makes more sense because we're doing something kind of concretely together. Um, and that becomes more stretch, right? The, the kind of mm-hmm. standard criticism of international law that there isn't a global sovereign and so forth become um, increasingly important when we're talking about external relations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to, to come down to the practical again, but uh, th- th- that, that's the way my mind works. But the, uh, you know, looking back at the history of economic policy and fiscal policy over the last uh, joint joint EU fiscal policy over the last twenty years, um, do you not think there's a danger that these tougher rules or, or even the nuclear option would be applied to some and not others? I mean, for example, if if Italy or France were to elect a far right government, which is entirely possible um and, and you know in this in this eu do you think de gaulle would have satisfied these these kind of norms
2: i mean this this is this is of course an excellent question and and obviously politics will will proceed in manners that, like in, in ways that correspond to to political actors desires and wishes and ambitions and and preferences yeah. and so forth and and not necessarily in line with what a political theorist like myself might determine is is normatively coherent um, or, or desirable um, i suppose one I, th- I think the task as a political theorist in those in that context is to call out the inconsistency mm. and to reflect on why that inconsistency is problematic right what are the foundations of normatively of what's problematic about this inconsistency whether it's some kind of um nativism if it's if it's our own state which which is not sanctioned and it, and it ought to be the state that we're a member of whether it's you know some kind of realist bowing to um to economic uh, criteria over over normative criteria or democratic legitimacy or whether it's something else that's going on some kind of um ethnic criteria some kind of you know There are all sorts of possibilities, but at the end of the day, um, I think we do have to be realistic about the fact that if serious backsliding occurs at the level of one of the major EU powers, then European integration as a project both has failed and is likely to wind down and change in character. Right. If we mm. see one or more major European states that become frankly autocratic, um, to go back to that term, whereas other member states are not uh, and, and therefore position themselves against that autocracy, those developing autocracies in this hypothesis, then I think it's, um, I think it's really the end and, and the failure of European integration as, as a project.
0: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the, the joint triggering, triggering of Article 50 is, is really the, the, the fascinating proposal in your paper. And, and as you said earlier, it, something like this is critical uh, to someone like Orbán, uh, particularly, particularly, as I said earlier, reinforced with, with this new majority. It does suggest that a majority of Hungarian voters want to have their cake and eat it. They they want the benefits of European Union membership, but they want to carry on uh, behaving and, and even pushing it further. So do, do you think that this is, you, you quote Mark Rutter and his talk about refounding the European Union or the European project. Do, do you think this is something that he did have in mind when he made that remark?
2: Let me let me jump back to something that you said slightly earlier on in the question before I answer that directly. Yeah. I think we need to be very careful to conclude from the Hungarian elections that the majority of Hungarian voters want to have their cake and eat it. I think what we see in Hungary, and that's, I mean, that's really the fundamental problem of democratic backsliding. Right? We have a result here, which if Hungary were still to be fully democratic state that f- with, with free and fair elections, then we would have to conclude this, right? Mm. But in fact... The Hungarian state is not a fully democratic state. The ruling party Fidesz controls two thirds of the media, all of the regional newspapers, almost all of radio, almost all of television, with with a couple of exceptions. It's incredibly Mm -hmm. successful in getting out pro-government propaganda, in ignoring or vilifying the opposition. This is not an environment in which we can conclude that the results of an election mean that the people support this project. I think what we can conclude is that propaganda works. And yeah. in, for, for that reason, I think we need to be very, very careful with uh, with how we consider um, the legitimacy of these elections. Now, regarding the comment by, by Mark Gutter, as as he formulated the comment, I wrote a, I wrote an op-ed about it at the time in the EU Observer, and as the specific formulation of of the comment in the Dutch Parliament referred to a discussion amongst European heads of state as discussing this as a as a possibility as a, as a kind of he called it a very nuclear option,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but. The reference was to refounding a European Union without Hungary and Poland. And of course, he didn't explain what he meant with that. But for me, that meant that at the highest levels of European politics, there was an awareness that disassociation would have to take that road if it were mm-hmm. to take any road because of the constraints and the, the guidelines, the boundaries of the European treaties.
1: Do you, I mean, you, you described it, well, he described it as very nuclear. Do, do you think there is a uh, tactical nuclear option short of that, which would be something like what the EU did to David Cameron in, in 2011 when he he vetoed the fiscal compact and every other member state then signed a new intergovernmental treaty? So would it be possible to create a, to create a union within the union or does that really not get us out of this potential problem? Is thats thats that... Is that, is that Insufficiently dissuasive to uh, to the autocrat, and is it insufficiently inoculative to the to the remaining members?
2: I think it is. I think it is important. Um, I think one of the conclusions of my argument uh, that dissociation should and must be the ultima ratio uh, response to democratic backsliding. One of the consequences of that is that we need to think very hard and very seriously about all of these steps that we can do before that to try to ensure that that option is never needed. Um, One of the possibilities is, for example, using the rule of law conditionality mechanism as as has just been announced Mm -hmm. against against Hungary. And one of them is interpreting that, the commission interpreting that that rule um, broadly to ensure that action can be taken against EU um, funding of the Hungarian state kind of... um, in, in areas where direct corruption is is not proven, but just on the basis of their judiciary no longer being independent, for instance, of the ruling mm-hmm. party, and, and budgets being threatened via, via that uh, lack of a kind of robust rule of law institutions. Um, one mechanism would be to try to um, bring sanctions procedures via infringement proceedings against Backsliding member states, and, and again, another one would be to exclude backsliding member states from further projects of European integration, as as you suggest. It's one of the options that I discuss in the article that I that I mentioned before, with which I wrote with Marine Chamon, Um mm-hmm. the possibility of kind of using this two-speed Europe um, possibilities to exclude autocrats from further integration, but of course. The problem that we have there is if we're, if we're considering a frankly autocratic state, then the kinds of exclusion that what's sometimes called differentiated integration can give us, right, excluding some member states from going further, is exactly that. It's excluding them from further integration. They're already included yeah. in, in yeah. lots of integration. And they're included in ways which, if they were to be frankly autocratic, are deeply problematic from a normative perspective. So it it would not solve the problem um, if push comes to shove, which is why I think and argue that disassociation is the legitimate, coherent and appropriate final political sanction for for democratic backsliding.
1: Just so so I understand, though, because it wasn't 100% clear to me, if, let's assume 26 members left the EU, deployed Article 50, left the EU, leaving one country behind in the EU, the EU would continue to exist and the EU would continue to to have the EEA agreement with the external countries. Is that correct? So there would still be all the benefits of the EU, I guess, except fiscal transfers because all the other fiscal transferers would have gone. I'd
2: have to think more about that specific point. So basically what would, the EU as a corporate legal institution would continue to exist, but it would exist as a shell which has no other members and therefore none of the benefits of European integration. Um, The question about then the relation between the European institution as a, sorry, the European Union as a legal entity, so let's call it now for for ease, the, the old European Union, And the agreements which that European Union has with other institutions and and other states, whether they're trade agreements or whether they're, uh, like you say, the EEA and and so forth, Um, that is an area that I haven't puzzled at very much. Um, And we need to think more about how that would work in terms of Mm. the legal aspects. I think it's fair to say that the extent to which economic integration takes place outside of this context of the EU, which is very particular, right? And which, um, in which the context of which we are considering this um, standard um, sovereignist view of of membership versus my political view of membership. Um, It would be, it would be considerably easier to then dissociate further in terms of economic cooperation.
1: Yeah. Well, um I mean you, you rightly pointed out uh, or corrected my my assumptions around what does sixty percent vote of Hungarians mean. So uh, but you wrote um you co-wrote an editorial for your active immediately after the election calling on the commission to take advantage of the Developing split between the Poles and the Hungarians following the Ukraine war, um, and, and to launch the conditionality mechanism, uh, which they promptly did. Um, do you think, and you have kind of suggested this, um, that while while that's a a good uh, uh, you know um, uh, divide and rule tactic. There is a danger that it will focus the conditionality mechanism very specifically on on the budget and and not have a wider application. Do you you think that's, um, is that a risk?
2: That's a risk, but that's, I mean, we're already down that road. Uh, Hungary and Poland were incredibly effective in watering down the rule of law conditionality mechanism to such an extent that now legally, the way it's formulated, the um, actions against states have to be brought in terms of threats to the EU budget that's been an explicit um that's been explicitly incorporated into the mechanism so in that sense and this is this is something that people don't realize um perhaps as as much as they should but if if the rule of law conditionality mechanism is interpreted narrowly um and and my colleagues dan kellerman and and john Morain have have made this case quite clearly. If, if it's interpreted narrowly, so you have to actually prove um, direct corrupt uh, use of specific funding or graft, then the rule of law conditionality mechanism is in fact just a weaker, slower, and less effective version of something that already existed. Yeah. Um, and, and that that's a real danger. Um, regarding the, the the editorial in your in active, there is, I mean, there's always a risk, right, in in treating, well, in trying to make some concessions to Poland on these terms while moving forward against Hungary with the hope that that would split up uh, their further kind of split up their um, their alliance on, on rule of law issues. I think there really our idea, Jakob and my uh, idea, is that it would be a kind of pragmatic um using something which is which isn't great to, to our advantage what's not great is that the rule of law conditionality mechanism is, is so uh, narrowly written now uh, the result being that it would be very difficult to um bring against poland at this at this stage unless it's interpreted very broadly but to use that in a political way to try to, to try to, um, as I said, to break up this kind of rule of law alliance.
1: I mean, all in all, this this does feel like a turning point. I mean, the the, the war is forcing liberal democracies to turn more militant. Let's say, Orbán has been re-elected. There's a credible threat of a return of Trump in 2025. Do you? Do you, do, you, do you think that this, this refounding potential refounding is, is, is becoming more credible now?
2: I've always said that this refounding, this, this kind of withdrawn refound procedure is both kind of fantastical and, and seems fantastical, but um, in certain very possible, not likely, but very possible circumstances will become rapidly realistic. Um, one thing which I so I, don't, I don't have a crystal ball on and I, I, this is not generally the kind of business that I'm in but I think that mm. if, if backsliding remains contained remains contained to um, several but few member states largely um, and, and that it gets worse in those states then this is something that we could definitely move towards. If we see um, more tectonic shifts in European politics, including in larger member states, um, for example, with the election of Marine Le Pen in France, Uh or your example was the election of a a populist radical right uh, leader in Italy, then I'm not sure if there would be much of, of refounding. I think there might be some withdrawing and perhaps the creation of of new of new institutions of European integration with with different memberships, but that's um, that's very speculative.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, as usual, to end the podcast, I've asked my guests to recommend two books or, or maybe papers in this case to to listeners, uh, one from their field and one personal choice. Uh, Tom, what have you chosen? Uh,
2: before I get to my choice, I. I- I fudged earlier on uh, the book of a, of a good <laughs> friend of mine, uh, Peter Rovchek. So the title for that is, is Memory and the Future of Europe. I don't know why I couldn't okay. think of it. It's I, I <laughs> well, it, was it has the
1: word memory in it, that's why.
2: <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Freudian. Yeah. Um, so so that's, that is highly recommended, but that wasn't my choice. My choice was actually a, a, a newish book by, uh, by another two colleagues of mine, um, Carlo invenici Acetti and, and Chris Bickerton, wrote a fantastic book on, on techno-populism which I highly recommend. Um, and then the the more personal choice, a book that I've really enjoyed reading recently, um, was The Goldfinch uh, by Donna Tartt.
1: All oh, right. Okay. Well, uh, today I've been talking to Tom Towns about his paper, The Need for an EU Expulsion Mechanism, published in 2022 by *Res Publica*. Tom, thanks again for, for coming on. It's
2: been a great pleasure, Tim. Thank you very much.